welcome to the Reading for Your Life podcast. As always, I'm Alex, and if this is the first time that you've listened, this show is about books that have particularly meaningful lessons for how we choose to live our lives. I hope that it's about 50% book nerd and 50% philosophy of life, but you get to decide whether I pull that off. This month, we're starting off 2020 by sharing John F. Kennedy's Profiles in Courage. Now, if you're not familiar with the book, there's a little bit of controversy that we'll get into later, but before that, let's talk about the book itself. Before Ask Not What Your Country Can Do For You, before the Bay of Pigs, the Space Race, and Camelot, John F. Kennedy was a senator from the state of Massachusetts. Kennedy's family already boasted prominent businessmen, congressmen, and mayors. His father was a successful investor and served as the first chairman of the Securities and Exchange Commission, and then later U.S. Ambassador to Britain. So JFK, coming from such prominence, was afforded access to a lot of prestigious boarding schools, he had a Harvard education, and he got no small amount of help from family connections. He served in the U.S. Navy during World War II, earning the Navy and Marine Corps Medal and the Purple Heart. It was during that time that he suffered a back injury that would plague him for the rest of his life. After a brief stint as a newspaper correspondent, JFK's father encouraged him to run for Congress. His father did a lot of paving the way, and then JFK was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives to represent the 11th Congressional District of Massachusetts. He then served for six years before running for Senate against Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. Again, with lots of help from his family, JFK succeeded in winning the election and would go on to serve two terms, after which he'd famously run against and beat Richard Nixon for president. But it was during those first few years in the Senate, when, after a series of back surgeries, he took a leave of absence from the Senate to recover, where he found some free time and decided to study the topic of political courage, an area that he'd already been interested in since his Harvard thesis. The result was the book Profiles in Courage. It focuses on eight senators who at some point in their political tenure showed great courage, even when facing pressure from their constituents and parties. The book won the Pulitzer Prize for biography in 1957. To quote the book itself, this is a book about the most admirable of human virtues, courage. Grace under pressure, Ernest Hemingway defined it. In each chapter, the book tells the story of a single senator at a pivotal moment. Many of the stories revolve around the most fractious time in American history, the Civil War. Both pro- and anti-slavery voices are heard with unionists and secessionists both risking everything to do what they thought was right. I'll briefly share a few of my favorite stories. One is Daniel Webster. Senator Daniel Webster was known for his oratorical skills, and he was largely crystallized in the American mind by the 1936 short story called The Devil and Daniel Webster, in which Webster successfully argues what seems like a hopeless case against the devil to save the soul of a fellow American citizen. Despite an ironclad contract wherein the defendant agrees to forfeit his soul and pretty much every possible card stacked against him, only on the strength of his oratory, appealing to all that is good about America and freedom, the jury decides to fine for Webster and the previously damned defendant. Now, the real Daniel Webster was a senator from Massachusetts. He'd previously represented New Hampshire and then Massachusetts in the House, served a stint in the Senate, left to serve as President Tyler's Secretary of State, and then returned to the Senate in 1945. As a well-known figure, Webster offered some critical support for Senator Henry Clay of Kentucky's Compromise Bill, which purportedly was designed to preserve the Union in the lead-up to what would eventually become the Civil War by granting concessions to Southern slaveholding states. In his 7th of March speech, Webster advocated the right of slaveholders and argued that the issue of slavery was less important than the preservation of the Union. He attacked Northerners for being too focused on the issue of slavery and attacked Southerners for threatening to secede over the issue. 
Better to put the whole topic of slavery aside, he said, and preserve the country. Now, as you'd imagine, no one was really happy with that. His speech earned him condemnation from voices across the country, especially among abolitionists. Horace Mann described Webster as a fallen star, Lucifer descending from the heavens. After the public backlash, he resigned from the Senate to once again become Secretary of State, this time to the Fillmore administration. Now, I don't agree with Webster's position, but he and others like him who focused heavily on preserving the Union likely gave the North the time it needed to better prepare for the eventual war. Had Webster not risked everything to preserve the Union, the war might have started sooner with the Southern secessionists in a much stronger position. I think my favorite story in the book is the next one we'll talk about, Thomas Hart Benton, an incredibly powerful political figure in his home state of Missouri and a firebrand in the Senate. Benton, a slaveholder himself and representing a slaveholding state, was vehemently opposed to the expansion of slavery into new territories. He broke with the entire Missouri delegation and with many other allies to stand against compromise measures that would have allowed slavery into the new western states. Famously, the debates became so heated that Henry Foote of Mississippi drew a pistol on the Senate floor and pointed it at Benton. In what has to be one of my favorite moments in Senate history, Benton tore open his coat and yelled, Let him fire! Let the assassin fire! Thomas Hart Benton had worked as a lawyer in St. Louis when it was virtually the Wild West. In what began as a simple courtroom disagreement and then escalated into a series of duels, Benton shot and killed a rival. He reportedly brushed himself daily with a horsehair brush, something that he'd picked up from ancient gladiatorial practice to toughen the skin. He was legendarily tough and was the central pillar of democratic politics in Missouri and in many ways in the country. But for his stand against the expansion of slavery into the West, Benton lost his seat in 1951. He then ran for the House and won, but only for one term before losing again. And then he ran unsuccessfully for public office in Missouri several more times throughout the rest of his life. This tough-as-nails senator who was openly afraid of nothing and who, remember, was a slaveholder himself, was essentially cast out of his party for his refusal to accept the expansion of slavery into the West. And despite everything that it cost him, his position became an important factor in Missouri's later decision not to secede during the Civil War, making the Union stronger. And then finally, Sam Houston, another larger-than-life personality. So Sam Houston is now remembered as one of the heroes of Texas, hence the largest city in Texas being his namesake, Houston. Originally from Tennessee, Houston ran away from home and then spent several years living with the Cherokee people, earning the name Raven. After he spent some time in the army during the War of 1812, he oversaw the removal of many of those same Cherokee people from the state of Tennessee. Houston went on to serve as a representative in the House in Tennessee and then later as governor, but only after a few years, Houston resigned the governorship, divorced his wife, and moved to the Texas territories. He would end up helping to organize the Texas government, leading the Texas Army to a victory in the Battle of San Jacinto, capturing Santa Ana, and then helping win Texas independence from Mexico. The result was Houston being elected as president of Texas in 1836 when they were an independent nation. He left office only due to term limits. The president of Texas could only serve one term at a time, but then he won office again in 1841. After Texas joined the United States, something that Houston was very in favor of, he was elected to represent Texas in the U.S. Senate. Houston, Southern through and through, would become the only Southern member of his party to stand against the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which would have allowed slavery into the new Western states. While still in the Senate, he announced plans to return to Texas and run for governor, a race that he would eventually lose. 
Only a few years later, he was asked to run for the governorship again, and he succeeded, which helped counterbalance a lot of the pro-slavery voices in Texas. He, in fact, was opposed to Texas secession during the Civil War, but he lost the fight. After Texas voted to secede from the Union, Houston, still governor, refused to take an oath of allegiance to the Confederacy, insisting that Texas had merely returned to its status as an independent nation. Unfortunately, pro-Confederacy forces were just too strong, and Houston was pushed out. He would die before seeing Texas rejoin the Union at the end of the Civil War. He once said, I wish no prouder epithet to mark the board or slab that may lie on my tomb than this. He loved his country. He was a patriot. He was devoted to the Union. Now, let's get some tough truths out of the way. First, JFK may not have actually written this book. The U.S. Senate and the JFK Presidential Library maintain that Kennedy was the author, and the Pulitzer Prize was awarded to him. But reporting over the years has suggested that Kennedy's celebrated speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, may have actually been the author. Sorensen would say in his autobiography that he did contribute heavily, writing drafts of most of the chapters and working through many revisions. The final question of authorship may never really be definitively resolved, Kennedy would make payments to Sorensen totaling over $100,000, which, converted to today's money, would be just under a million. But Sorensen also signed legal documents saying that he only played an advisory and supportive role to Kennedy. So in the end, I think it's probably likely that the book was at least co-authored by Sorensen. The second big issue is that the stories in the book are meant to accomplish a very specific aim at a very specific time in history. Historians have argued against the accuracy of some of the key points in a few chapters, and the book paints several pro-slavery figures in a surprisingly positive light, at least compared to how they'd be portrayed in just about anything written today. All of that said, Profiles in Courage has had an incredible impact and remains an important part of President Kennedy's legacy. The Kennedy family began awarding a Profiles in Courage award in 1989 to recognize new moments of political courage. Recipients have included past presidents of both parties, champions of civil and human rights like U.S. Senator John Lewis, leading bipartisans like Senators John McCain and Russ Feingold for their work passing campaign finance reform in the McCain-Feingold Act, and international champions like Kofi Annan. Kennedy's daughter, Carolyn Kennedy, would later publish Profiles in Courage for Our Time, in essence an updated sequel featuring 13 of those recipients in a collected series of essays. And other politicians would follow in JFK's footsteps. Senator John McCain's Character is Destiny follows a very similar format and offers a similar message. Today, we have even more memorable moments of political courage. John McCain's thumbs-down vote on overturning the Affordable Care Act in 2017, saving the law and earning him the ire of his party and the sitting president. Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, also from Arizona, who was shot in the head during a local town hall in her district. The shooting left six others dead and Congresswoman Giffords critically injured. She would later resign her seat to focus on recovery, but on the second anniversary of her shooting, she and her husband announced Americans for Responsible Solutions, a group dedicated to helping prevent gun violence. In this moment, when our president has openly called for violence and the overturning of an election, angry mobs have swarmed our nation's capital and threatened to kill elected officials. And the seat of our nation's power is actively locking down in anticipation of more threats to come. We'll likely remember Republicans who have voted for impeachment, people like Congressman Tom Rice hailing from the 20-point Trump district in South Carolina, who declares, I have backed this president through thick and thin for four years. I campaigned for him and voted for him twice, but this utter failure is inexcusable. 
or Congresswoman Liz Cheney representing the state of Wyoming, where President Trump won 70% of the vote in the most recent election. Congresswoman Cheney is the third-ranking Republican in the House and is now facing calls for her removal from leadership. But she said, I'm not going anywhere. This is a vote of conscience. It's one where there are different views in our conference, but our nation is facing an unprecedented since the Civil War constitutional crisis. That's what we need to be focused on. That's where our efforts and our attention need to be. These are important stands, but there are many more moments than the ones we see splashed across the headlines. Paul Bridges, formerly mayor of Uvalde, Georgia, was the only politician to support an ACLU lawsuit opposed to a new law that would have required undocumented immigrants to present proof of immigration during routine traffic stops. It also would have criminalized anyone who knowingly interacted with undocumented individuals. Bridges, a Republican, said that the law would have been inhumane and would have hurt the local farming community that relied on undocumented individuals. And he also recognized that the law would have made him a criminal because he often gave rides to friends who were themselves undocumented. Bridges faced backlash from anti-immigration voices and lost support within his party, but he remained firm in what he believed was right. Or Joseph M. Darby, who, after a deployment as an army specialist to Iraq, anonymously reported human rights abuses at the Abu Ghraib prison. His actions spurred an investigation into conditions at the prison and launched a national conversation on the treatment of POWs and how we honor our commitments to human rights. To quote Profiles in Courage, in a democracy, every citizen, regardless of his interest in politics, holds office. Every one of us is in a position of responsibility and, in the final analysis, the kind of government we get depends on how we fulfill those responsibilities. We, the people, are the boss, and we will get the kind of political leadership, be it good or bad, that we demand and deserve. I'd take that one step further and say that we get the kind of community leadership, religious leadership, business leadership, and family leadership that we demand and deserve, whether it's good or bad. In our actions, our votes, our dollars, and our time, we take stands on what we're for and against. On the value of human rights, our commitments to the future of our country and our world, and on the kind of society we want to have. Profiles in Courage demonstrates so much more to me than a few historical vignettes. It's a challenge to find those moments in our own lives where we might exhibit grace under pressure. Moments where the comfortable choice, the popular choice, or even just the easiest choice isn't the right one. When we know what's right in our hearts, when we know that in word and in deed we can stand for the kind of future we want to build and pass on, Those moments of courage deserve to be celebrated, especially when the cost of standing up can be such a very long fall down. When this episode is released, we stand on the edge of President Trump's second Senate trial, the hopefully peaceful transfer of power to the Biden administration, and the early moments of a global effort to vaccinate nearly 8 billion humans against the novel coronavirus COVID-19. We face these moments with deep political divisions, threats of violence, rampant fear, and mistrust between parties and nations. But we face these things as individuals coming together to make our institutions. And if we can be courageous, if we can be brave and steadfast in what we know to be good and good for our neighbors, we will make it through and build a better future together. That's it for this episode of Reading for Your Life. I hope you've enjoyed the discussion of Profiles in Courage, and I hope you'll give it a read. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I'd love to hear from you at modernpolymaths at gmail.com, modernpolymaths on Twitter, or modernpolymaths media on Facebook. 
You can also check out modernpolymaths.com for past episodes and musings on big questions about life. On the next episode, we'll finally get around to Matthew Crawford's The World Outside Your Head. With noise, echo chambers, and misinformation all around us, it's a good reminder about what's real and how keeping those things central can positively impact our lives. Until next time, this has been Alex, and I wish you the best life imaginable. Thank you.